I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future material science and engineering. My name is Andrew and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Taylor. And today, we have a really good episode. If you've ever worked out in industry or you've made something really cool in the lab, you know, you have a great idea. You found something that really works. And then you kind of wonder, you know, other people must be doing this too, right? There must be other great ideas that are all around. Yet we don't always see these make it to market. Why is that? Oh, yeah, dude. That, that like hits home for me. We had our electrochromic ski goggles. You can oh, yeah. check them out on our Instagram page. They changed colors in response to a voltage. I thought that they were like the dream. But just because you can do it at the sort of prototyping scale doesn't mean it's necessarily even a good product or, or that it can be scaled. And today we've got a really cool example of some really cool tech. And it's in need of that push to get it across the finish line, to turn it into a product that we all are using every day. We hear about innovations happening all the time, but you have to wonder, how come some of these don't make it to market? You'll see cool pop sci articles talking about a new technology that somebody found, and yet five years on, that technology still isn't in our hands. What happens? How come some ideas don't actually make it to market? In this episode, we sit down to someone from Delta Faucets who has a great experience in research and development in the ceramics industry, where they show that just because you have a great idea and just because you make an exceptional material doesn't mean it's always going to make it out and make it into consumer products. And we are joined by Kurt Thomas from Delta Faucets. Kurt, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, my name is Kurt Thomas. Uh, I'm the uh, Senior Director of Advanced Research and Development at Delta Faucet Company. I've been employed at Delta for a little over 30 years. I worked in a bunch of different areas of my backgrounds in um, mechanical engineering, but I've kind of dabbled in electronics and materials and a bunch of other things over the years. So had an opportunity to work on a bunch of stuff. So Cool. Now, today, Kurt, we often have people on the show where they've got some awesome new product that they're selling. Today's a little different. Today, you're going to tell us about a technique that people could be using, but they're not yet. And so I'm excited to learn about this. It has to do with the idea of slip casting. Um, where do we even begin with slip casting? You want to give us just a basic primer sure. on how slip casting works? Yeah, it's uh, uh, the way that most ceramic products that you see today, the big stuff like toilets and sinks and vases and that sort of thing are made by a process called slip casting, which is actually almost 5,000 years old. It was invented in China. Um, basically, you take clay and some minerals and dissolve them in water and then cast it into a plaster mold. Uh, the plaster absorbs some of the moisture out of this sort of clay and water mixture. And when you pull the mold apart, you get sort of a wet, clay form of the thing you've got inside the mold. Uh, a lot of times it's hollow in the middle, so you kind of pour the excess liquid out. Uh, that's where you get a sort of a trap at a toilet or a sink or something like that. And uh, 
that process has pretty much been unchanged for since since five millennia ago. That's still the way that toilets and sinks are made today. Uh, there have been some some slight improvements in obviously in materials and process and things like that. But uh, the materials are still dug out of the ground just like they were five thousand years ago. Um, there are some plastic alternatives to uh, plaster that that have been developed, but they're pretty expensive and pretty niche focused on very high volume product. But for the most part, most most of the Ceramic parts you see today are made the same way with plaster molds. Uh, these molds last not particularly a huge amount of time. They last about 50 parts. So if you make the mold out of plaster, about 50 parts later, this starts filling up, getting clogged with the remains of the, the clay. And so you have to throw it away and then start all over again. Uh, so it's a, it's a inefficient process. And um, it, it also has a pretty high fallout rate. Um, it best world class is 80%, which means 20% of the product you make ends up going in the, in the landfill. Um, sometimes it's down around 15, 20%. So that means that you make eight or nine parts and, and uh, uh, you make 10 parts and eight or nine in a minute, but the trash. So, and if you're uh, making it's, sinks and bathtubs and stuff, these are really big parts. You're yeah, wasting a, a lot of material. material. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's facilities in China you can go to that there are uh, just acres and acres of broken pottery behind them that they use to grind up and make into road fill or something else. So it's a, it's a, it's a sort of something that's accepted into the, the industry is just kind of a cost of doing business. Um, but it's, it's the way that ceramics are made and, uh, and people in the industry are familiar with the, the kind of the cost associated with it and kind of bake it into the product. Now the benefit is, is you're digging most of the material out of the ground. It's basically clay and dirt. So uh, there is some offset there, but uh, labor wise, it's, it, it takes a lot to make, make a good product and it takes days. I mean, you cast oh, yeah. apart and then you have to dry it extremely slowly. Sometimes it takes up to two weeks to dry a, a, a ceramic part because you, uh, the, the clay is actually made out of little flat plates. And so uh, on a, on a sort of a molecular level and it uh, the water leaves it very slowly. So if you try to dry it, one section too fast, you actually develop cracks yep. in the material and you have to either like patch those up with like wet clay or you have to go very slowly in the drying process. And that's a lot of the reason you have the fallout is, is you sort of these inherent stresses build up from, in, uh, from uneven drying and that results in these sort of stresses on the part because it's actually shrinking the entire time it's it's uh, drying as well. So that's another problem is, is it's, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and pulling on the part in different ways as it gets uh, as it begins to dry out. So as you can imagine, a hundred pound toilet trying to like kind of slowly shrink down to, to 80% of its size and, and not break when it's made out of wet clay. So it, it's a, and now there's a lot of very smart people in the industry that do a lot of things to get the products we have today, but it's, it, it's a tough process and it's kind of unknown to a lot of people. I don't think if you're in the pottery industry, you don't really understand the struggles they go through to make the products we just kind of take for granted. So that was a great introduction to slip casting. Andrew, why bother with slip casting? Why would we use this as a technique? Because clearly, if you're if at sort of on the high end, you're expecting 80% success and you're throwing out so much, why is this such a useful technique? Uh, with ceramics, it's really hard to make complex geometries otherwise. It's all about that net shaping. You know, you can kind of machine things, but as soon as you have internal features and other things, it starts to get expensive. And ceramics are really hard, and it's very expensive to machine them. All of a sudden, your costs go way up. Um, and, you know, the other thing, I, I've cast quite a few things. I've done a bit of slip casting and it seems pretty easy, but once you actually try to do it, it's hard. <laughs> it's and way fact, hard. It's more of an art than a science at times. There's definitely a lot of technique and just sort of know how that goes into it that you just, unless you do it, you just wouldn't really understand. But 
you'd mentioned this comes out as a, as a wet clay, but that's not the end of it, right? For, for those maybe who aren't familiar with slip casting, what are, what's the next process look like? Well, uh, you'll take it out of the mold. You'll form any sort of features you need to put in there. Like if you punch a hole, you'll use like a little metal round, uh, uh punch to sort of punch the hole out and, uh, make little, uh, cut off and trim edges and, and kind of round over corners. And then you'll start the drying process. I mentioned it takes a couple of weeks to kind of get the part to a sort of a semi-hard state, and then you'll glaze it. Uh, so we'll, you'll use a glaze to, to cover up the outside of the, the product and kind of give that shiny appearance is what we think of as being uh, like a whiteware, a, a ceramic part, but that's actually just the sort of the paint on the outside of it. And it's made out of the same materials that you use for the the, the, the cast body. It's clays and, and minerals and, and uh, a variety of different colorants and things like that. One of the big things that it happens in uh, – a lot of casting is the clay is brown uh, when you take it out of the ground. And so if you don't want your product to be brown, you have to actually uh, put an opacifier in the oh, glaze because yeah. the glaze, when it melts, it actually turns into a glass. And so you have to put opacifiers in there. Uh, they can be uh, uh, zirconium oxide or uh, titanium oxide, and they'll basically occlude light from passing through. But there's a price to pay for that too, because the, the surface of that is actually kind of rough. Uh, they, they, they don't melt all the way and that's why they're opaque. And so you end up with a microscopically rough surface, which if for cleaning, you know, can leave behind, uh, deposits from like rubbing things on there, as you can imagine from things that go down toilets and things like that, you run a really <laughs> smooth surface. So, yep. um, so that's, that's another kind of thing that you have to work through and how much, and you have to put quite a bit on there to kind of, cause it's partially, oh, partially transparent. So you want to have enough thickness so you can actually not see, uh, the, the material underneath. So uh, there's there's a, there's a whole science behind glaze making as well and trying to get them to fit. There's a thing called fit where basically the glaze, as it's cooling, as a part cools, you want the glaze to uh, actually shrink a little less than uh, the body. So the glaze ends up in net compression, sort of like uh, tempered glass. And so that gives you a lot of yeah. strength in that, that glass glaze. Uh, if you have it under tension, you get cracks, which if you've ever seen a cheap coffee mug, you see those little Yep. marks all over it from the coffee and that's called crazing and that comes from a poor fit between the glaze and the body so that's a whole nother development thing you have to do in in the world of pottery so our Can't, listeners are never going to look at their toilets the same after this <laughs> oh my gosh i once I, I i remember seeing a picture of one of these assembly lines and and seeing that these things sit drying out under very careful humidity and temperature for 30 days right and and having done some slip casting myself my first job was at ceramic where i made just little tiny bars I could sympathize with how hard that process was because I was making bars like the size of a pencil, you know, really small things. And even they would break all the time. So big, complex shapes. I can't even imagine what a mess that must be. And so here you are at Delta Faucet Company. Now you're a big company. That said, you're taking on a 5,000 year old process and you're going to claim to have an idea that might make this better. It's a pretty bold uh, research assumption. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, it kind of starts with uh, we had got we've gotten into the toilet business and we were we're sourcing. We're still in the toilet business. We're sourcing toilets uh, from vendors. But we had, we put our quality into the product as even if we're buying it from somebody. So we had hired a, a ceramics engineer, a guy named Paul Bridget, and he had been around uh, for a long time. Actually, was born in the town called Stoke-on-Trent, which is really oh, yeah. where the, the English pottery com- pottery industry started at. A uh, great guy. Um, and we hired him to kind of help us to guide us through this process of making toilets. And Paul had been around the ceramics industry for a long time. Uh, and he had had some thoughts about like, you know, how do we make this better? Like over the years, kind of mulling around about what, 
what's a different way to do this? There's got to be a way to get out of this this 5,000-year-old dilemma. And so uh, he had had some exposure to a material called colloidal silica, which um, has been around since the, I mean, in industry since the 40s and 50s, uh, it is uh, basically uh, uh, silica. They started with sodium silicate, and then they uh, they remove uh, the sodium out of it uh, through uh, filtration and osmotically, osmotically, and uh, you basically end up with. Uh, sand suspended in water. So you have silica suspended in a water solution and they're held apart by the pH. So the, the charge of the state of the, the little nanoparticles of silica holds them in suspension. Um, so you end up with a liquid that looks like water, but it's actually 40% sand. Um, and it's kind of a cool product. They use it for a lot of things like making glossy uh, magazine covers. That's actually the gloss in magazine is colloidal silica. Uh, it's used, uh, if you ever had those little bags you get in your sneakers with the little balls in, that's, that's gelled silica. Uh, so it's, it's used in a lot of different things. One of the key areas is in uh, investment casting. They use it to sort of make the shells. If you've ever seen high-end investment casting, the, those, that's actually how they bind the shell together. Um, to make the investments and it's it's because it's very stable very strong material versus a clay type thing where you would have to it'd be difficult to kind of keep it together so he thought well what if i could replace the clay with the colloidal silica and then that way i could basically make instead of having having to use the clay which the clay really is just a kind of a glue to hold the minerals together through the firing process because once you fire a pottery piece it chemically changes into something else it's not clay anymore it's actually a porcelain material. So uh, what if I could find another glue instead of having to make my glue, all this component of this, the, 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 the makeup of this, the, the material, what if I could shift to something else? And so he kind of had this idea kicking around in his mind and he and I started talking um, uh, together about like, you know, different ways of making it. I had been to a toilet factory at that point. So I was kind of like you guys, I was blown away by the, the, the waste and the, and the process and the complexity. Um, so we thought, well, let's see if, see if we can do it. So I, we bought some materials and I actually made the first batch in a little paper cup and kind of, it worked. So, uh, there's, when you talk about colloidal silicate to convert it from a liquid to a solid, you actually do a process of destabilization. So uh, you destabilize the, the charge state of the colloidal silicon. Actually, they form a gel network that kind of holds everything together. Uh, and you can do this in one of three ways. Uh, you can either dry it, which is how they do in the investment cast industry. You basically remove the moisture and the sort of self-destabilizes. You can chemically destabilize it with a salt, uh, changing the pH, or we can do what we did, which is actually freeze it. So if you freeze the water inside, it destabilizes the the colloidal silicon forms a gel, and then when you unfreeze it, uh, the gel network remains. You still have a solid with water. You can dry it out, and then you basically end up with a rock hard um, uh, remainder of the of the form. So I actually made a little paper cup piece and uh, and and fired it in a kiln downstairs which apparently it should have exploded and it didn't. It was just, it came out in one piece. Paul was shocked. He was like, I can't believe you did that. It didn't explode. And I was like, oh, it seemed to work. So it's kind of those things you don't know what you don't know. So he and I said, well, let's give this a shot. So we, uh, fortunately, Delta's a big company. So we were able to find a little bit of money and a little bit of help and a little bit of space and uh, started sort of a skunk works program to see if we could figure out a way to make this actually work. Uh, we spent a number of years uh, part-time with three or four people kind of figuring out how to mix the minerals and, and, you know, to recreate sort of the, the porcelain material that you expect to get out of a sink or a toilet by using uh, this process. And um, 
eventually kind of settled in on, on a, on a formula that basic that, you know, with alumina and silica and feldspar that would, uh, you could cast into complex shapes. Uh, you could dry it in a reasonable, a very quick period of time, and then you could fire it. And then the end result after it sort of consolidated was basically the same material that you would make a toilet out of. So, or a sink, the, so. let me, let me ask you a question then. So the big advantage so far of using this over a traditional slip casting is what? So I heard a couple things from you. First off, you're just starting with different material. So therefore your solids loading might be different. The amount of mm-hmm. water you have to get out might be less. I don't know. Um, so I think you, in previous, we talked about this. I think you said that colloidal silica is usually 40% sand and silica. So you're already at a decently yes. uh, high solids loading. But the other innovation might be actually the fact that you can, there's different mechanisms to form the gel. And once you form the gel, you'll be able to extract the water faster. Is that the advantage or? or Absolutely, me, yeah, there's a couple different advantages. So uh, one of them is the the speed of the casting. So it, you can freeze it apart very quickly. So instead of basically waiting for the water to migrate out of the clay, which can take hours and hours and hours, this is done in just a few minutes. So we freeze it very quickly and then we're, we're we can take it out of the mold. It comes out of the mold rock hard. So it's, it's stable, very strength. thin cross sections, very strong. Uh, this is not like a lump of hundred pound lump of wet clay. This is actually like a part that's almost like a piece of plastic. Well, I mean, a huge benefit of this uh, material because of the strength of it and the consistency is, is you can actually machine it. So usually after you're done drying uh, a toilet or a sink, you can sand a little bit on the outside of it, but you're basically, if you start drilling holes in it or anything like that, you're going to crack it and break it. Um, this material, because of the strength of the, the silica gel, you can actually cut it with diamond tooling. So we were taking these sinks and drilling drain holes in them and machining corners off and cutting in. We cut lettering into one of them one time with the CNC machine. And last thing, which is really the cool part, is, is it dries really fast. Once you create this gel network, there's all of these tiny uh, pathways for water to escape uh-huh. from inside of the casting. So you can dry at incredibly high rates um, now it took a little bit to learn the technique there. It's not, it's not a slam dunk. It was easy on those little small parts you're talking about as you kind of scaled it up, it got more difficult. But once we kind of figured out some techniques, it really kind of changed the game. We were able to dry things in just a matter of, I mean, a hundred pound sink, we were able to dry in, in like an hour, um, which is just kind of unheard of in the industry. Uh, and so it just, uh, you know, it, it was just a huge shift in the way you think about making these products. Um, yeah. I, oh, I was going to say that that makes a lot of sense. Just opening up those different networks as opposed to having to diffuse water through all these really complicated channels forever. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. So do you get less shrinkage as well? Just because you're, well, yeah, you're, you're actually, freezing it. That's there, the so. really kind of cool part is, is uh, when you think about traditional ceramics, the shrink the shrinking occurs right from the moment you stop casting. As you begin to evaporate the water, the, the clay particles sort of slide by each other and consolidate and you're shrinking all the way through to the firing process. When we, uh, after we dry its net shape, it's exactly the same size uh, as it was when you cast it. So you don't have to worry about differential shrinkage from different wall section thicknesses. Uh, It comes out net shape exactly the same size as you cast it. Now, when you fire it, based upon uh, the the plasticizers in there, or I'm sorry, the plastic, but based on the, the amount of water that's in there, you actually... Can, you will vitrify it. So you want to like remove the spaces in there. So it becomes a solid article versus sort of a, a porous article. So that part of it, yes, there's a consolidation, but that all occurs in the kiln and actually is really kind of cool. It actually occurs really late stage in the firing process versus there's 
in the traditional firing process of pottery, you're kind of removing the developed water, which is there's clay actually has water chemically bound to it. So you have to remove that water in addition to the water you put in to make the slip. But we don't have that. So you basically get to the very end of the firing process and you sort of consolidate all at once into this this solid shape. And uh, it's it's very controllable and uh, and much more uh, narrow uh, in its uh, in the temperature range, so you can control when it's occurring, uh, and allows you to to really get a really consistently vitrified product compared to a traditional um, ceramic item. So, I'm, as I'm hearing this, I'm I'm hearing like two competing effects. On one hand, the gel structure is awesome; it sort of preserves that, so you don't get the shrinkage. But then you have to deal with that shrinkage later on. But on the other hand. If it's forming this gel structure that's giving it the strength, maybe you can get away with using less plasticizers. So can you talk about like the trade-off between porosity of your final product since you're not having to burn out maybe as much? Can you what what does your final oh, product absolutely. look like in that trade-off? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's there's a couple things going on there. One is is that we're we're dealing with a really extremely clean material. So you know your your organic burn-off, which there's a lot a lot of times a, a certain component of organic compounds that have to be removed. Uh, we're, we're dealing with almost a pure mineral material, so we don't have to worry about any of that, uh, that excess, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of contaminants entering into the clay. We get a very clean material and it fires much more consistently. Um, in addition to that, um, we are able to, you know, we can make a very uh, sorry, the material ends up being very white. Um, so traditional clays are brown colored, a lot of iron and other contaminants in them. We end up with a material that's basically a completely a white, white material after yeah. firing. So we can use a clear glaze as opposed to oh, a yeah, white cool. glaze, which just completely changes the game as far as durability goes. And also you can use an extremely thin glaze. You would think in your mind to say, well, thicker glaze would be better, but actually the thinner you make the glaze, the stronger it is. And so we can go with an extremely thin coating and that gives a really, allows it to be really tight against the surface and make an extremely durable uh, glaze on the outside of the ceramic item. Okay, so to, to put this in the historical timeline, you had this idea, you tested it out on some really small scale things, you tried it out on some stuff, your company was awesome to invest in this R&D and let you try it out, and it's looking promising. Tell us what happens next. Like, why are we using this today? What's happened? What happened next? Sure. Well, uh, as anyone who's ever worked at, at, a, at a in a corporate environment, it's a complicated process. We have a lot of a lot of uh, things that you have to be deli- you're responsible for. There's there's a lot of masters uh, that have to be answered for. So we're, uh, you know, our goal the goal of the the process was to eventually make a a competitive a cost competitive product, and so we entered in the process of kind of investing into a scaled manufacturing facility. But I think, you know, we're not a, a, a 3M or a, a Corning Glass. I mean, we, we're a smaller corporation as far as an R&D perspective. So it's difficult to kind of understand the scaling of processes. This is not something we usually do. So we got a little bit ahead of ourselves and probably went a little bit too fast into the scaling process and started to run into some issues. Um, a lot of it was just kind of a naivete a little bit of, you know, we had yeah. made we had a lot of success early on with some smaller products. And then as we brought up the scale, we thought, well, it should be a linear relationship. And it was not a linear relationship at all. We ran into some real roadblocks. And, you know, as we got closer to the end, you know, the, a lot of things change over a period of years in a corporate structure, uh, priorities shift, uh, customers change, uh, you know, goals, goals shift. And so it kind of became sort of a thing that was not really kind of one of our core competencies that we really wanted to pursue. So 
uh, due, due to sort of the timeline and the budget we were spending, we kind of got to the point that we we're like, you know what, we're, we've kind of gone as far as this as we, we can and we're, we're going to stop. And a lot of that was, you know, we had made a couple errors in uh, some of the, the judgment of how we were doing the process and probably overinvested in some equipment. We were going to have to backtrack buy a whole new set of a new set of capital equipment that was going to be expensive. Uh, it was going to take a lot of time, which a lot of times times more important than money. Uh, so we kind of decided, you know what, we're going to, we're going to stop here. Um, you know, let maybe let somebody else take another go at it. Um, and, and to credit Delta, I think is, as a, you know, a really forward, uh, forward thinking organization. We actually took the time. Paul actually spent the last six months before we, after we shut the project down, um, just sort of documenting everything, kind of like pulling together test reports and, you know, cataloging pictures and uh, taking, getting data lined up. So we kind of had this thing sort of uh, put together in a package that we feel like we could help educate somebody else to carry it on to the next next stage. And so we're kind of out here looking for somebody to, to kind of pick up, pick up the baton. I mean, we, we, we've got uh, uh, some IP wrapped around it. We've got a lot of technology development and, uh, and we're kind of hoping maybe we can find a partner to kind of pick, go to the next step and take it into production, whatever that form may be. So. Cool. To do that, um, I understand there's a couple key challenges that are going to have to be overcome. Whoever picks this football up and runs with it, um, it's not quite ready for prime time. And that's because you had some really interesting specific challenges. One had to do with casting of it and the the rate of pulling the, the <laughs> right? Because you're freezing it, right? Yeah. You're relying on... It's like, it's like a eutectic freezing, basically. Like you're freezing this and trying to solidify it in that way. And the rate at which this happens is important. Can you talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, one of the challenges we ran into early on was as we realized that, um, as you can imagine, when you freeze water, uh, the crystal structure is dependent upon how fast you freeze it. So if you imagine your windshield in the morning after a cold day, you get that very large ice crystals that form on the windshield. And then sometimes it's an extremely fine, uh, fine sort of frost, you know, almost like snow uh, uh, crystal structure. So to get a good, uh, casting, the key with freeze casting is to basically freeze it extremely fast. And so you get microscopic, nanoscopic, uh, part, uh, free, uh, sorry, ice crystals. And those allow, uh, for the ceramic particles to be in close proximity to each other to form sort of this gel network. If you, if you freeze really slowly, you get these large sort of very pretty looking, but, but huge crystal structures on the outside. And then those form into cracks because you've got giant gaps yep. that are left over after the water leaves. So um, we realized very early on, we need to freeze it really fast. We kind of went through a process. We went from the freezer, we went to dry ice, and then we ended up with liquid nitrogen. And we had aluminum molds and we were dipping them in liquid, in these huge bats, bats of liquid nitrogen. Uh, we had a, like a kiddie pool size of liquid nitrogen that we were dipping things in. So cool. And it worked really good. The problem was, is that you only need to get to to zero degrees Celsius to freeze something, uh, liquid nitrogen is minus 300 degrees. And so we would freeze the part and then everything kept going and it would go all the way down to 300. And it was really hard to stop it once you made that phase transition because there's so much energy in the phase transition. Once you got it frozen, I mean, everything started diving toward minus 300 and the mold and the, and the ceramic part don't have the same coefficient of thermal expansion. Oh, there it is. And they start putting a lot of stress on each other. And, um, we did some things to mitigate that and we got really close, which sometimes when you're developing something, getting really close is almost worse than failing horrendously because you, <laughs> think then you waste more time on it. it. Yeah. But we, we, we just kind of got to the end of there and we were like, you know, this is just not going to work. 
I think what we, and this is kind of the thing that we realized we needed to do was you really need to figure out how to get the heat out really fast, but you need to keep the temperature at a reasonable rate. And we really needed to move to a liquid coolant, uh, some sort of cryogenic liquid coolant that we could bring the, leave the temperature somewhere above 300. Not, I mean, not at zero, but maybe like at my minus 100 or so. And that would kind of give us the, yeah. the range we would need to kind of get the heat out. Um, you know, liquid nitrogen, the other problem with liquid nitrogen we ran into too is, is it forms a gas when uh, it touches something and that is an extremely good insulator. Yeah, so it makes, it's a real challenge to get things cool back liquid nitrogen. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is hard. And I'm thinking from like a material science standpoint, the challenge is uh, presented. You could either move to a higher thermal conductivity material, but you're already with aluminum. It's pretty darn good. Yeah. You, so I think you guys tried carbon fiber and this can be even better. Um, you could try thinner materials, right? To pull that heat out faster. You can increase your flux by making it thinner, but there's some constraints on how, just how thin you can make things. And then you have this Coriolis effect, which basically produces a, an interference, right? This, uh, sorry, an interface resistance to your thermal transfer. These are hard things to overcome. Yeah. Maybe you could do freeze drying, but the scale of a toilet's pretty tough. I can see why, you know, you could make small samples really easily and probably very, you know, you know, very great looking samples, really high quality, but then scaling up all of a sudden you're, you know, conflicting and you're battling heat That's transfer. a good question. Did you guys try freeze drying? That's, that's pretty common in ceramic um, casting. Yeah, we actually, uh, we, we, we tried, um, uh, some different options of trying to like, you know, to dry out the, the material. Uh, the problem you run into is, is it's, it's the time and thickness, you know, as, as you're kind of destabilizing and drying the material, it sort of changes a little, uh, changes from the wet material, which is a lot of the problem that the investment cast for industry runs into of trying to make this. That's why they have to do the shells in like dozens and dozens of layers, because as you, if you leave too much liquid in the middle, it starts to harden at a different rate and shrink slightly. And that kind of pulls on the, the dried part. Once, once the material gels and dries out, it's rock hard. So it has very little flexibility. So if you kind of dry oh, at a different sense. rate, it's difficult to, to, to kind of maintain sort of the structure. So, so another challenge is also like, so you've got colloidal silica, which is just tiny silica particles and you've got your surface, right? If this has any cracks or flaws, now you're getting these tiny little particles in there. And I know how much effort we go through with regular die casting of ceramics to clean the dyes, because if that particles are, are left behind and they scratch the surface, it just gets, it's like a, it's a feedback loop. It gets worse and worse. Oh, absolutely, it yeah. destroys yeah. it even that worse. Was- and so maintaining your dyes has got to be a nightmare with this stuff. Yeah, it was it was one of the real challenges we ran into with aluminum dyes because the col- the colloidal silica would bond with the me- metallic surface and actually kind of begin to erode it away and pull it away. It's a nanoparticle, so it's it would get into any sort of uh, small space. We started off doing Teflon coatings, which actually worked pretty well, but you know with the shallow draft we were trying to do, we were getting some wear with that coating. Actually, shifting we shifted to uh, carbon fiber, and then we even tried fiberglass. The organic material actually does a doesn't really have an affinity for colloidal silica. So it's actually a much better um, uh, surface. So we think, you know, some combinations of mold release and probably going to some sort of uh, fiberglass or carbon fiber construction would allow us to, you know, probably have, have kind of gotten over the hump. But I think with the cooling, uh, we, we really had to take another take at how we were going about cooling the mold uh, to get the frozen part out of it. And there are some other options with spraying and some other uh, spraying of liquid nitrogen which we attempted and there, there's probably maybe a path that direction too, but it's just sort of, you know, you get sort of stuck in a rut of the way you're doing things and it's kind of difficult sometimes to kind of back yourself all the way out after you've kind of made a commitment of equipment yeah. and money and 
things like that. So what's the message to our listeners? We have a, a big audience of bright people and they might be hearing this thinking like, God, that is a good approach that does fix a lot of the challenges of the traditional slip casting. Um, if they have an idea, which I'm guessing some of our listeners might, what do they do? You guys still, I imagine, own the IP. Yeah, we're still interested in, uh, in partnering. Uh, you can feel free to email me. Um, I guess I can give my email address. It's a kjt at deltafaucet.com. Um, feel free to email me. I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll get the lawyers involved for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're open to kind of ideas and other things people may have. Uh, about ways that, that they could utilize this. And, and we've talked to some people in the industry and they've had some thoughts on, you know, uh, body armor and other things. You know, there's other ways that this process could possibly be utilized and things beyond what we traditionally think of as ceramic components. And maybe just to, you know, push that excitement a little bit further, did this die in the prototyping stage or did you actually make a, a full sink or a toilet out of this? Yeah, yeah, we actually made some sinks using it. Uh, really great sinks. I mean, it, they're, they're, the, the cracking problem was we almost solved it. So we, we actually did get some product through that was uh, uh, pristine. And uh, it, it they're incredible. I mean, uh, they're, they use a clear glaze. And so it's extremely easy to clean, doesn't stain, doesn't mark with uh, silverware, which is a real problem with white, uh, their yeah. kitchen sinks with white sinks. And it's really strong. Um, you can, I have a video, you can drop a lodge eight inch cast iron skillet in the bottom of the sink from six feet in the air and you will break the skillet. Uh, so I have a video of that. <laughs> That's wild. So these must be pretty so, tough then. Yeah. I mean, we've taken out when you, when you're making tradition, ceramics are extremely uh, strong material, but the defects are where you run into problems. And so when you're casting a traditional ceramic part, there's actually thousands of tiny little cracks all through the inside of it that are getting covered up with um, the material on the surface. You don't see them, but they're there and they, they form a weakness that can result in a, a brittle fracture. Uh, we're basically making a homogenous part with, with almost no, uh, virtually no uh, stress cracks in it. So it's very, uh, you know, it's very strong. Uh, it, it takes, it distributes stress really well and you get to take a full advantage of the material properties of, uh, aluminum silicate ceramics. So interesting challenge. So you're trading off these small scale flaws for larger macroscopic challenges from the casting process itself. Yeah. God, somebody ought to innovate here. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of bring up, you know, I, I, I think we, we've talked a lot about there's potential it's, it's kind of, for me personally, getting into this, uh, this industry has been really exciting. I think there, there's a lot of sort of black art. I know as you guys have done slip casting, you talk to people in the industry, it's a, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of like back of the envelope. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I do it. I just do a type thing. Magic and, hands, they um, call them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Don't do uh, So, but, but there's actually a really cool, a lot of science there too. And I think uh, people kind of, you know, as you get into the material science, uh, looking at ceramics, there's a lot of really uh, interesting and in-depth uh science behind what's made and and there's a lot of uh ingenuity and a lot of learning that you, you can you can pick up so i i've really enjoyed uh the learning process of finding about a new material that i had not been familiar with and um kind of getting to experiment a little bit kind of find my way out into the open uh where somebody hasn't been before so exploring is kind of cool so I, I've, I enjoyed that part of it a lot very cool
This episode was brought to you by the Delta Faucet Company. See what Delta can do at deltafaucet.com. The Materialism Podcast is sponsored by Materials Today. You can visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the material science field and read some of their fantastic articles they've published. You can also head over to elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Materialism Podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback, send us an email. Reach out to us. We're easy to get a hold of. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com, or we're actually much more engaged on Instagram and Twitter. So our Instagram handle is at materialism.podcast, and you can connect with us there. We also post lots of fun pictures and uh, additional stuff about the show, some behind-the-scenes things. So check us out there. It would really, really help us if you would leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave us a positive review, and it will help us expose the show to new people. That would be really great. Uh, finally, we want to give a big shout out to Alphabot and Colobite. They're the ones who make the really cool music that we use in this podcast. So thanks to them. We think they make good stuff and we think that you should support them. You can find their stuff on Spotify and YouTube. So with that, we will see you guys next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>